So um, welcome, Ron. I'm here with Ron Perry, and I'm very honoured to be in this space today because I first met Ron back in the mid-80s as one of my first teachers and supervisors in the uh, Diploma in Family Therapy course that I was doing back then and, and has been an inspiration to me over the years. Clearly, it's a great honour to be in this space with you, Ron, today and have this conversation with you about your work. And I'm going to begin by asking you, uh, when I look at uh, what's written about you, you're known as a counsellor, a psychotherapist, a group facilitator, a family therapist, and a counselling psychologist, and also someone who was awarded an OAM. Which was, excuse me, interrupting, which was for contributions to counselling. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So, so I'm interested in, does the title of how you're known, um, is that important? And, and, and how would you define um, yourself? And has that maybe changed over the years? Oh, it's certainly changed over the years. I mean, as you said, we met in the mid-80s, mm. um, which was a time of excitement. Mm. Like there was, I mean, even now, uh, or, or rather now, there's, there's so much uh, training offered uh, because of the uh, online and that kind mm. of thing. But in the mid-80s, everything was new. We were still really coming out of Freud, uh, analysis and Carl Rogers. Mm. Uh, or, or not just coming out of, but going with. But everything that was new came out. Like, I still remember the shock of doing gestalt therapy. <laughs> uh, and in fact, I found that I actually didn't use a lot of the fancy stuff that much. Mm. But it was so important to have been immersed in it as I was for a while. Yep. So in terms of, we, of the titles, well, the interesting thing to me is that... Um, psychology psychiatry medicine all of those they don't own counseling and psychotherapy it's something that uh, people do uh, they need to be well trained and reflective it doesn't just belong to one uh, to one profession uh, so that that that's what strikes me and and that's why I you know did a presentation recently on contracting because mm. um, in some ways, uh, when, when you get through that door, or these days, uh, open up Zoom or Skype or something, it then is two people. It's, it isn't two titles. You know, it, it's two people. That's what's important. Now, a lot of the writing talks about it being a client or a patient and a professional. That's true, too. Mm. Uh, but, but underneath all that, they're two people. Um, and uh, for me, uh, and it, it, it's even in the evidence base now, in some ways, the most important, in inverted commas, new word is collaboration. Mm. We, are, we are learning more clearly uh, what at one level we've always known that we had to collaborate and we had to work together. Uh, people sometimes say to me, I remember what you said last time. And, <laughs> That doesn't help me at all because I don't know what I said. So, so I ask them what I said and they tell me. And 90 times out of 100, I can say, but I said that because you were discussing that or talking about that or that came out of you. What I said, particularly what I said that the person remembered, was something that we did together. 
occasionally there's some wonderful piece of advice that I've given them, but most of the time it's something that we we collaborated on together. Mm. So what I hear you saying there is that it's more about the relationship and it's about, you, you use the word collaboration, which I think is a really um, uh, important uh, word to use because it's about how you connect with the client or clients, the, the person or people that are in the room with you. That, that's what's important. That's what's important and what that person is ready for. Like I can have an idea. Uh, I've I've had a lot of experience, so I can I can think to myself. I know what's happening with her or him, mm. but uh, a I would I don't want to be that sure because I don't necessarily know. Um, but uh, that the second thing is that are they ready for me to say that? Will I understand what's going on in my head? Mm. That's not what's important. Okay. It, is, it is important. I, you know, I know when people are just starting the profession, you know, at that stage, we feel we don't know much and mm. that, that's got its own anxiety. Uh, so we do know stuff, but, but uh, knowing what's going on inside this person, I mean, I suppose more recently, uh, I've, I've gone back a little bit to the old Freudian idea of defences and the unconscious and you realise, and we, we, we talk, it, talk about it now, I think the, the new word professionally is trauma-informed. Mm. You know, mm. not always dealing with tra trauma, but we're always acknowledging that we're informed that trauma can be there. And if tra serious trauma is there, then people are very often unaware of it mm. because they've, they've used a lot of energy defending themselves against it. And, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself more aware of that. And if you're in the space of, say, um, lecturing to a new cohort of, of um, trainees, regardless of professional group, counselling, psychology, social work, psychiatry, and they were interested in the area of working humanistically with, with, with clients. Now, what would be some of the kind of key uh, learning points that you would be wanting uh, someone to take away in thinking about developing themselves as, as someone who can be in the space of working with clients? What are, what are some of the key things that stand out for you? Well, that, that's a that's a big question, of course. I think one of the one of the first things is that the counselor has to be the counselor or psychologist, whatever, has to be informed enough. Mm. No two ways about that. They they really do have to be informed enough. But but then um, they they then have to be ready to to ask themselves to uh, almost two questions: What is this person here? ready struggling with ready to hear we used to call it the presenting problem what are they presenting and mm -hmm. is that what is the is that what they're really ready for yeah then then i have to ask myself what hat am i wearing like in my experience uh, i've dealt both in supervision and in counseling therapy uh, call it what you will with a broad variety of people um which means I don't know who's coming, who mm. is coming through the door, 
and what they're bringing. Hmm. And it's going to take me a while to work that out. Um, and some people are just coming because somebody's told them that they need to solve a problem. Hmm. Some of them are coming because they want to explore something. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we, we need to work on that. So those questions, you know, what's this person bringing and, and what hat am I wearing? Am I wearing the hat of uh, a professional uh, who's, just, who's here to see what's happening? Am I wearing the hat of somebody who's dealing with extremely disturbed people and is ready to outsource them if necessary, refer mm -hmm. them? What hat am I wearing? Then like the, the second thing uh, is... Yeah, what is this person actually searching for? What's, what's the struggle that they're having? And what's their life about? So I suppose the other word that, that uh, is not that it's new, but that it's, um, it, it continues to inform my work is what's the story mm. that this person is living in? Yep. Uh, and like we used to call it, family therapy um, mm -hmm. and then I and Margaret Topman who taught me uh, family therapy originally um, would be very angry if we called it anything else but family therapy mm. but I want to call it context therapy because I, I think family therapy awakened us to the reality that we live in a context so yeah. you know the word that we use now is biopsychosocial yep well, somebody yeah. that somebody changed that to biopsychosocial and spiritual, yeah. if you want to. But um, yeah, so I hear a number of things that really stand out for me there, um, and I'm going to start with that last thing that you that you commented on, which is about the importance of context and understanding who is sitting in front of you and and helping the person to understand. The reasons why they're there and what what's the direction that that therapy or treatment or counseling whatever the whatever the word that you want mm. to use mm. which direction should we go in and and you use the word or the term context and I often talk about the client's backstory or the client's narrative uh, because mm. we don't we even if we're disconnected from from perhaps our family of origin you know we try and you know I don't want to have anything to do with them yeah we are still connected in some way it's still shaped the way or who yeah. we are and so yeah. that backstory that you're describing is really important and if I take you back to the first um a point that you raised which is that we need to be informed enough and we do need to strive to be evidence-based um mm. our, our health system is based on pr providing rebates for clients that come for evidence-based treatment but i think alongside that is the importance of then how do i connect with the client and still use evidence-based practice but spend the time that needs to be spent in getting the backstory and understanding the client and helping the client to actually understand where they're at and then how to move forward. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, I think I said before, it, it, it seems to me that as we sit there, we are, we are the professional. For all that I'm talking about collaboration and so on, we are nevertheless 
the professional sitting in mm. the room or mm. on the other side of the video or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and so it's almost like there are two, we've got two tracks that we're following. One uh, is a reasonably straightforward track, which is the professional, you know, we call it sometimes diagnosis. And it's, I don't mean diagnosis in the formal DSM-5 sense, but diagnosis in understanding mm. what, what the mm. problem is. Um, and that includes uh, how we might assist the person with that, deal with it, etc. You know, we, we sometimes, or, or professionally, we sometimes use the word treatment. Mm. And Carl Rogers preferred not to use that word uh, because it too much implied the, the difference. Um, but whatever you use, treatment or whatever, we, we still are trying to assist mm. that person. That's one line, one track, if you like. But the other track is what's happening between me and this mm. patient client uh, all the time. What's happening to me? What's happening to them? Uh, can I actually uh, listen to their world and try to understand their world? One of the things I'd want to say to beginners is, this sounds very simple, but it's actually very demanding mm. because up to a point, we have to be ready to leave our world and immerse ourselves in theirs without losing our contact with our own. But mm. so both those things are going on in the, in, the, in the context, if you like, and the context then includes the bigger story that seems to be influencing them. I had a simple example the other day where somebody who was basically a manager, I think, came to talk about a difficulty with management um, that seemed to be very stuck. But when he talked about uh, where he'd come from in his family, he started to feel a whole lot of things that absolutely shocked him. Mm. Well, sometimes miracles like that happen. <laughs> Usually it takes a lot, a lot longer. <laughs> And, and by bringing that into the space, into the therapy room, how were you able to bring those two tracks together? Uh, well, to, in that story, I didn't. I was a bit anxious, actually, that, um, that this person had left with exploring some things that had surprised him. Uh, and he said, I'd, I'd never spoken about that before. And I was a bit concerned that was this useful or, but when, when he came back for a second session, he, he mm -hmm. said fairly soon, I wasn't so stressed at work with this, with what was going on. Okay. Okay. But again, miracles happen, but usually. Yeah, well, it's uh, what we sometimes call an aha moment. Uh, clients exactly. are putting pieces of the puzzle together mm -hmm. and then suddenly uh, things start to make a little bit more sense for the client. Look, I just have to comment, uh, Ron, on, on you mentioning that you experienced a little bit of anxiety. Uh, and I think that's a, I want to pause there for a moment, because for me, that's kind of music for me to, for, for anybody listening to, to this conversation, is that that's an important element of being introspective of self as a therapist in noticing what's going on. Mm. Use, use that, you know, someone of your calibre, your experience, your knowledge base can still feel uh, uncertainty 
from time to time, which means that you are being present and focused and working deliberately with that client, which I think is a really important point to raise. But I think that really makes a lot of sense to me about the importance of when you have a reaction therapeutically to, to pause and think about what is that telling me? How might I use that? How might I use that in my next session with the client? Do I share that with them the next time I come? So that hopefully will be an aha moment for some people that are listening here thinking, gosh, even the experts at times get anxious. Well, certainly, because um, uh, we're always, or I, I find myself, I'm always asking myself, am I doing the best I can for this person at this mm. moment? Mm. Um, because there's a lot of things going on in my head about mm. what I might say or how I might say it or what I might refer to. Mm. Um, and even in that case, it was an anxiety about had I, should I have said more at the end of the session to wrap up what's going on between us. But it was a, it was a kind of reminder that um, the session was different to what the person had expected. Yep. And, yep. and I didn't know what to expect, of course. So I suppose I was feeling the, the two pulls there mm. and wondering mm. where was this person with it. And for me, that would be, again, I guess, a, a punctuation point for clinicians to think about, might this be something that I would take to my supervision? Would this be an opportunity to reflect on my practice and how might I use one of these moments to share with a, with a colleague or a, a supervisor to reflect on, on practice? So what position do you have around the importance of supervision? Well, I'll go back a little bit like in in fact I was a school teacher for a while and then in a sense by accident I was asked to do a kind of HR job and so I was getting some training and I said to myself I'll probably need some counseling mm. uh, so I, that's where my counseling started mm -hmm. but, but prior to that in one of the trainings I was doing and it was a, a, an advanced kind of training and it was in a, it was overseas and as part of the training, they had these groups. So we sat in a group and all of a sudden people were talking about personal experiences uh, mm. that I'd never imagined you could talk about. And really for me, that, that, that was the beginning of group work. Mm. It was without realising it was also the beginning of counselling because mm. uh, this, this could happen. Mm. Now, I bring that up in terms of the supervision thing because... Uh, I think that that kind of exchange with each other, uh, which we do in various ways, we do it in supervision, we do it in professional reading and, and professional development training, but it's, it's indispensable because, mm -hmm. you know, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm the limited person that I am with the personal reactions that I am, that I have, uh, and that's what we're going to work with. That's part of the tools that we're using. This, this person mm. who's there has got me. They haven't got somebody else. They've got me. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And being in that space of the, 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 the group therapy and sharing of, of experiences with other professionals, do you use that experience in, in your own work of providing supervision to either individuals or teams? Oh, a, a whole lot, actually. I, fi I find um, one of the first things that I learned about supervision, hopefully I learned it reasonably quickly, was that the supervisee 
is the person who's going back to talk to the client, not me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. I, I, I learned reasonably quickly that I'd better not just tell them what I do uh, or tell them what they should do. That's not the point. The point is they're going back. That person mm. is going back to work with that person. But nevertheless, I, I do find myself now in supervision um, very often saying, well, uh, I might do this, but how would you do? I've also learned that, that most times when I make some bright suggestion, the supervisor, says, well, I've done that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that kind of takes us into the space of the importance of reflective practice, which is kind of the buzz term that's used a lot in clinical supervision these days. Yeah. Um, the importance of, of asking, as you say, to the supervisor, how might you do this? You know, yeah. What's your thinking around this? Yeah. And, yeah. and then trying to kind of expand their thinking and mm. practice, hopefully, yeah. around maybe incorporating some of the ideas that you might um, bring into the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I often ask them, you know, when that happened, what did you say? Yeah. And yep. they've forgotten what they said, but then it comes to them. Uh, so, it, again, it's very much a collaboration, and mm. it's, but it's a different sort of collaboration because, uh, I mean, sometimes, especially if the person's inexperienced, if the client, if the, if the counsellor or the psychologist is inexperienced, I might instruct them or offer an idea or suggest mm. this and this, what about that and what about mm. that? Mm. Um, but, um, but with more experienced people, I find myself more often saying, uh, acknowledging, I might do this or I might say that. I mean, uh, I, 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 I sometimes say these days, well, this is what an older male might say. What would you say? So again, it takes it, it, it takes you back to the contract and thinking about what is our purpose here? Um, yeah. how, how are we going to work with each other? And and, yeah, and, and being interrupting, but how are we going to do it right now? Yes. Yes. The purpose, there's, there's the purpose that we might be heading towards, but what, what are we doing right now? And would you name that in, in the session with either a client or a supervisee? Would you continually bring up this question about like, like pausing and, and analysing what, what's needed here now? What, what are we doing here? Well, as I said, as I've said, I said somewhere else, um, I find myself very frequently asking, especially in supervision, uh, what's the contract? What's mm. the contract now? Mm. You know, um, mm. because the, the the contract varies hugely. One supervisee, uh, being racist, says to me, "The Italians talk a lot," uh, which which I think means this the super the supervisee can't get a word in, um, but uh, um, he or she is also saying um, the clients talking a lot. Are they reflecting? Mm -hmm. You're talking about reflective practice, and yeah. it's quite a task mm. to assist somebody. What is one writer says that the the most important fork in the road is when they shift from explanation to exploration. Uh -huh. That's a very important statement. Can you tell say a little bit more about that? Well, for a lot of people coming through the door, 
they are coming to a counsellor, sometimes for the first time, sometimes after a lot of experience, and they come in with something. And when they come in with something, often there is an explanation kind of thing to do. This is what often happens. This is what, mm. you know, like, like at the minute with the COVID thing and all that, people are coming in with, with degrees of anxiety that are, that are not very well defined, but are very real. And mm. so sometimes you're training people to do a bit of relaxation or a bit of this or a bit of that, you know, mm. there's, there's some explanation is needed. But, but gradually, it's going to be more valuable to them if, if they are also exploring. Now, that holds both in supervision and in, and yeah. in uh, casework, yeah. Mm. A question that I, that I thought about to ask you when preparing for our talk today, do you believe that it's important for therapists to have their own therapy or to undertake some kind of self-reflective work in order to to understand the human psyche or to be better placed in working therapeutically well I don't especially um, make it a huge must like mm. the uh, like the analysts do mm. Um, mm. but my story about group work uh, mm. was for me a, a, a just a mm. total enlightenment uh, mm. and that, that has to keep going mm. we, we have to have the equivalent of that self-exploration self-expression yeah. uh, self-searching and that's why in supervision um, uh, much more than I used to I'm, I'm so often asking the supervisee what was your reaction to that mm. you know? mm. How mm. Do you, or, or even a more general kind of thing how do you feel when you're with this person? Mm. And then, then I, they, they can come out with how cranky they feel or how distasteful they feel or whatever as a part of the reality. Then they can explore the other reality, which is trying mm. to appreciate what this person is living. Mm. Um, mm. So not a, a definite yes or no, as you're saying, like the analysts, but you yourself have undertaken some of your own kind of personal journey through the group therapy. And I know both of us have been influenced by the work of Maurizio Andolfi, who uh, looks at the use of self in therapy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that is an area that I think um, helps a therapist, again, to move into the space of understanding transference and counter-transference. Yeah. And, and transference and counter-transference in the broadest sense, not mm. just in the kind of very particular sense that the Freudians or the analysts mm. talk about, mm. but, but the transference and counter-transference is, is a spectrum of, like they used counter-transference originally, I think Jung changed it a bit, but the originally counter-transference was how my disturbance uh, might get in the road of dealing with their disturbance. Mm. Well, that's that's a part of it, uh, but that's that's a fair way down the track. A lot of the time, it's my reaction mm. uh, yeah. That, yeah. that that informs, like like when the when this person talks about the Italians talking a lot. Well, what's interesting is how come you get affected by that degree of talking. Mm. And that they're talking about their own impatience or their own uh, desire to get to get ahead, whatever it might be. 
it's absolutely vital that that's available. One of the best ways to get it is is certainly by an ongoing um, therapy for oneself. Mm. But not everybody can afford that time-wise, money-wise. But, you know, what's vital, and you were talking about uh, uh, what needs to be said to people uh, going into training. Well, one of the things that needs to be said is don't get isolated Mm. because Mm. there's a bit of a tendency for people to think they can go into private practice uh, fairly soon after after they've graduated or something and uh, you can understand that as being a necessity in some ways but it's certainly not ideal I think if they do that they have to work out how how do I keep in touch with the profession as a whole and how it's shifting and developing and how other people are managing it what I've learned and haven't learned all that so the importance of connection, creating space for reflection, being aware of self and how you use self in the therapeutic um, context. Being open to one's own vulnerabilities. Yes, and, and, and being able to, to sit with that and I guess also to think about how to use that therapeutically as well. Yeah. What, is, what is it telling me? Because you tell the story about the uh, cl- clinician who gets agitated by um, uh, the Italian client who might talk too much, but in actual fact, it's, ethnicity may not have anything to do with this. Many clients talk a lot. Yeah, uh, it's more about how do I how do I have a voice in the therapy room and how do I how do I position myself? What what can yeah. I do? And and why am I feeling so vulnerable? Yeah. Uh, and why am I interpreting it in this way? And so that would be a conversation that you might have in the supervisory context. I oh, absolutely. What you when you're asking somebody to explore their reaction, mm. trying, the the supervisee is trying to explore her or his reaction, uh, in order to not let that reaction take over. But you can nevertheless work out how to use this in a way that might be useful to this client. And, and then generalise that to other clients that might activate you in a similar kind of yeah. similar kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you, and it leads on from you talking about the importance of being connected as a clinician, some key kind of go-to lessons or, or messages that you would be wanting to give to an early career practitioner about how to maintain enthusiasm, um, skills, uh, knowledge, important things, important messages that I, I guess maybe you've learned or that you've observed over the years of what's important in, in staying well as a as a health professional in right. this space. So you're talking you're talking about um, reasonable self care and that kind of thing. Is that what? Well, yeah, it could be reasonable self care. It could be to do with um, uh, professional development. You know right. what what you think are kind of three go to kind of. I, I guess I, I guess you know some of us learn the hard way. We make mistakes. And mm. then hopefully yeah. we learn from those. We don't keep on making mistakes, you know. Mm. Hopefully, I think, my, I think my list is at, at about fifteen at the moment that I share with people in training. Um, uh, so don't do this because I've done it, and hopefully I've learned from it. So, so things that to be to be mindful of as a professional um, that will keep you um, 
not only psychologically well, but professionally well, uh, you know, because you're, you're someone that's been working in this field for a long, long period of time. And what, yeah. what keeps you interested and motivated to continue being in this space? Um, well, if, if I'm talking to beginners, I'm, I'm going to say to them or suggest to them, look, find you, you must find a good supervisor that works for you. Mm. And probably even more important, it would be good if you found a very helpful supervision group. Mm. Um, because then you're in touch with uh, the profession as a whole. Uh, like in some services, there are decent group meetings where that mm. can occur. But yep. in some services, there are not. Mm. You know? uh, so it, uh, I mean, I, this is me. I, I find thinking about it, uh, I'm, I'm a word person in many ways. I, I, I go a lot on people's words as well as their feelings, mm. of course. So one of the things I suppose has kept me going is, is continuing to read current writing mm. and, and trying to, uh, certainly these days you can't keep up with everything, especially for beginners, they, they do need a fairly clear map. Mm. And they need to probably mm. pick, a, um, to pick a, a, an approach and, and follow it without necessarily doing what the a lot of the americans seem to do which is to pick an approach eliminate all others and follow it mm. well mm. I'm, I'm very grateful that we're in australia where we can't do that really but we do hear different specializations different yeah. discoveries yeah. so it's it's that how do you how do you keep up um like sadly uh you don't get uh teamwork as we used to you don't, most of the one-way mirrors have been scrapped or used mm. as rubbish bins. Uh, or office space. Or office space, whereas that, that approach was so helpful for people to learn mm. and mm. To, hear, to hear people's different ideas, different approaches, and then realise, no, this is how I would do it, uh, which might be right, even though it's different from how somebody else might do yeah. it. You, you started off with saying for beginners thera beginner therapists, so a good supervisor, a helpful supervision group, um, reading uh, and, and having a clear map. Would that change for a more experienced um, practitioner? Well, a more, more experienced practitioner will probably still need a good supervisor and may be able to do without the group. But uh, also for me, I yeah, I, I still think you you need to keep up with uh, at least one or two journals that that mm. are uh, that are up to date and and inspiring i mean there are two that that i use anyway one is the australian new zealand journal of family therapy mm. which still gets yep. all sorts of good family therapy and other articles yes it does yes um, and then uh, the uh, the american journal called psychotherapy networker Mm. which which mm. used to be family therapy networker yes yes then, yes then, then they changed the, the psychotherapy but i mean that represents it doesn't need to be family therapy psychotherapy if you like but the psychotherapy mm. networker deals with context a hell of a lot yeah yeah so it's a it's it's, it's broadening the context and yeah. and as you say the more experienced clinician perhaps because of the greater complexity or, or the different roles that they might have, uh, still needing good supervision, but the, the group supervision may not be 
it's not not as important, but but certainly continuing on with supervision and yeah, yeah. and professional development. We're nearly coming to the end of our talk. I guess there's a couple of well, there's two questions that I'm interested in. Is going back to one of your very early papers on empathy and and the importance of empathy in the therapy room and or not even just the therapy room I think in practice generally and how do we nurture and encourage empathy within ourselves and uh, if we're working in teams or if we're a supervisor how do we promote that and use that um, in the spaces that we're in what comes to me with that is that uh... I want to still be excited by different stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I still remember years ago, I don't know whether I read this or heard it, but uh, one Victorian uh, psychiatrist who was training uh, beginning psychiatrists in, in, uh, uh, in therapy, really, he said to them, read novels. Mm. Uh, that in a way can help you develop empathy because mm. you begin to understand different stories. And mm. what's vital in counselling and therapy is that, that the story that the person's living may or may not be the, the, the best story for them, that mm. often it's made up of what they've learnt uh, to manage, survive and all that, and, and needs, needs to be uh, reviewed, restudied, reflected on all of that yeah well it's interesting you know I I, I was uh, watching I think an interview with Irving Yalom who uh, was done a few years ago who actually said that he continues to end his day um, every day by reading um, a book um, and being interested in reading about people and stories and, Mm -hmm. and learning and it's a way of continuing to kind of just to incorporate different lenses, I suppose, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of life that we might not. I mean, we we still, you know, life is this big, and we're, you know, we we know this much of it. And so, by yeah. reading, uh, and it doesn't just have to be uh, a professional journal. We are we are learning about other kinds of yeah. stories, which is useful for us as practitioners. Absolutely, and and we need to. We need to do that because, in a sense, anybody might come through the door mm. uh, and mm. we, we might have to meet them and, and try to appreciate the story that they, they find themselves living in. Mm. And we might need to explore that story. But, uh, you know, yeah, we, so well, we need to keep ourselves interested in life as a whole, uh, which is bigger than my life and bigger than their yes. life. You know. Yes, yes. I guess a, a quote or, or, a, or a phrase I think that might be worthwhile kind of finishing up on and maybe expanding on, um, and it goes back to one of the first things that you were saying about a client coming in with a presenting problem, that they come in with a, with a question um, or I need help with. And one of the things that I remember um, back in the mid-'80s uh, in my early um, years of learning to be a family therapist was that I was told, um, possibly by you actually in a lecture, is the map is not the territory. And I guess just to expand on that, how do you 
um, explain that to a to to say a therapist in thinking about the way that they're going to work. They get a referral, a referral from the from the doctor. Mm. Uh, typically, it will say anxiety, and depression. Um, uh, so that's the <laughs> that's the map. Um, so what does it mean? The map is not the territory. Bateson's the map is not the territory. How do you make sense of that and and describe that in a in a kind of a therapeutic context? Well, um, at the minute, I very often tell them the story that came out of a movie years ago. Now, uh, the movie was called Lincoln. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis is in it, mm. I think. And towards the end of the movie, when Lincoln is trying to get his anti-slavery through Congress. Uh, he has the advisors and one of them tells him, Mr. President, you've got to talk to so-and-so, Mr. President. Mrs. Smith runs, Mr. President. Lincoln says to them, thank you, gentlemen. I know exactly what to do. You've given me a compass. He said, a compass so reliably points to true north, points exactly to true north. It just doesn't show the swamps and hills mm. and valleys that there might be on the way to true north. Mm. So I'll sometimes quote that, but then I'll say to them, you know, what you're doing is remembering that underneath what's actually happening or said is a whole lot more to explore. And mm. that's what you, we have to keep paying attention to. Mm. And so that goes back to something that you said earlier about the two tracks having the professional, the importance of evidence based treatment. Um, diagnosis in whatever terminology that you want to use, whether it's a classical DSM or whether mm. it's the biopsychosocial spiritual lens, um, the context, but then always holding in mind the other track that you were describing about really navigating that backstory of the client mm. and um, uh, being wary of the swamps and the potholes along the way and the deviations and the roadblocks. Well, I, I just remembered at the end of the of that article on empathy that I wrote, uh, I quoted uh, Shakespeare from Prospero, where at the end of The Tempest, Shakespeare's last play, uh, Prospero is going back to Milan, uh, or Milan as they called it, I think then, um, and, uh, and he says, now my charms are all or throne, and what strength I have is mine own, which is most faint. And I want to say to people, sometimes you've got to put your charms aside, your your mm. uh, your track, not not to leave it, to know that it's there, mm. but you've got to stay with your own. The best I can do at the minute is this. Mm. Mm. Um, and I very often say to people in supervision, look, as a supervisor. I'm two steps further back, I can think more clearly. When mm. you are in the situation, you're, you're in with that other person, yeah. you can't think of everything. Mm. Mm. So that's a lovely note um, to end on, Ron. So uh, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. And um, I hope this uh, conversation will give food for thought for those that might choose to listen to it uh, moving forward. So thank you. Thank well, and you. thank you for the opportunity and 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 congratulations on the on the idea that this is something that could be useful to people. We well, hope I hope so. I hope so. It's uh, 
Um, it was useful back to me in the early 80s and your words of wisdom are still useful to me now. So that must be saying something about uh, about the legacy that you have in, in the work that you do. So thanks. Okay. Thanks, Christine.